Chapter Six, Part One of A Chronicle of Eighteen Twelve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Chronicle of Eighteen Twelve by William Wood. Chapter Six, Eighteen Fourteen, Lundy's Lane, Plattsburgh, and the Great Blockade, Part One. In the closing phase of the struggle by land and sea, the fortunes of war may, with the single exception of Plattsburgh, be most conveniently followed territorially, from one point to the next, along the enormous irregular curve of five thousand miles, which was the scene of operations. This curve begins at Prairie du Chien, where the Wisconsin joins the Mississippi, and ends at New Orleans, where the Mississippi is about to join the sea. It runs easterly along the Wisconsin, across to the Fox, into Lake Michigan, across to Mackinac, eastward towards Lakes Huron, Erie, and Ontario, down the St. Lawrence, round to Halifax, round from there to Maine, and thence along the whole Atlantic coast, south and west, about into the Gulf of Mexico. The blockade of the Gulf of Mexico was an integral part of the British plan. But the Battle of New Orleans, which was a complete disaster for the British army, stands quite outside the actual war, since it was fought on January 8, 1815, more than two weeks after the terms of peace had been settled by the Treaty of Ghent. This peculiarity about its date, taken in conjunction with its extreme remoteness from the Canadian frontier, puts it beyond the purview of the present chronicle. All the decisive actions of the campaign proper were fought within two months. They began at Prairie du Chien in July, and ended at Plattsburgh in September. Plattsburgh is the one exception to the order of place. The tide of war and British fortune flowed east and south to reach its height at Washington in August. It turned at Plattsburgh in September. Neither friend nor foe went west in 1813, but in April 1814 Colonel McDowell set out with ninety men, mostly of the Newfoundland Regiment, to reinforce Mackinac. He started from the little depot which had been established on the Nottawasaga, a river flowing into the Georgian Bay and accessible by the overland trail from York. After surmounting the many difficulties of the inland route which he had to take in order to avoid the Americans in the Lake Erie region, and after much hard work against the Lake Huron ice, he at last reached Mackinac on the 18th of May. Some good fighting Indians joined him there, and towards the end of June he felt strong enough to send Colonel McKay against the American post at Prairie du Chien. McKay arrived at this post in the middle of July and captured the whole position, fort, guns, garrison, and a vessel on the Mississippi. Meanwhile, seven hundred Americans under Krogan, the American officer who had repulsed Proctor at Fort Stevenson the year before, were making for Mackinac itself. They did some private looting at the Sioux, burnt the houses at St. Joseph's Island, and landed in full force at Mackinac on the 4th of August. McDowell had less than two hundred men, Indians included but he at once marched out to the attack and beat the Americans back to their ships, which immediately sailed away. The British thenceforth commanded the whole three western lakes until the war was over. The Lake Erie region remained quite as decisively commanded by the Americans. They actually occupied only the line of the Detroit, but they had the power to cut any communications which the British might try to establish along the north side of the lake. They had suffered a minor reverse at Chatham in the previous December, but in March they more than turned the tables by defeating Baisden's attack in the Long Woods at Delaware near London, and in October seven hundred of their mounted men raided the line of the Thames, and only just stopped short of the Grand River, 
the western boundary of the Niagara Peninsula. The Niagara frontier, as before, was the scene of desperate strife. The Americans were determined to wrest it from the British, and they carefully trained their best troops for the effort. Their prospects seemed bright, as the whole of Upper Canada was suffering from want of men and means, both civil and military. Drummond, the British commander-in-chief there, felt very anxious not only about the line of the Niagara, but even about the neck of the whole peninsula, from Burlington westward to Lake Erie. He had no more than 4,400 troops, all told, and he was obliged to place them so as to be ready for an attack, either from the Niagara or from Lake Erie, or from both together. Keeping his base at York with a thousand men, he formed his line with its right on Burlington and its left on Fort Niagara. He had five hundred men at Burlington, one thousand at Fort George, and seven hundred at Fort Niagara. The rest were thrown well forward, so as to get into immediate touch with any Americans advancing from the south. There were three hundred men at Queenston, five hundred at Chippewa, one hundred and fifty at Fort Erie, and two hundred and fifty at Long Point on Lake Erie. Brown, the American general who had beaten Prevost at Sackett's Harbor, and who had now superseded Wilkinson, had made his advanced field base at Buffalo. His total force was not much more than Drummond's, but it was all concentrated into a single striking body, which possessed the full initiative of maneuver and attack. On July 3rd, Brown crossed the Niagara to the Canadian side. The same day he took Fort Erie from its little garrison, and at once began to make it a really formidable work, as the British found out to their cost later on. Next day he advanced down the river road to Streets Creek. On hearing this, General Rial, Drummond's second-in-command, gathered two thousand men and advanced against Brown, who had recommenced his own advance with four thousand. They met on the fifth, between Streets Creek and the Chippewa River. Rial at once sent six hundred men, including all his Indians and militia, against more than twice their number of American militia, who were in a strong position on the inland flank. The Canadians went forward in excellent style, and the Americans broke and fled in wild confusion. Seizing such an apparently good chance, Rial then attacked the American regulars with his own, though the odds he had to face here were more than three against two. The opposing lines met face to face unflinchingly. The Americans, who had now been trained and disciplined by proper leaders, refused to yield an inch. Their two regular brigadiers, Winfield Scott and Ripley, kept them well in hand, maneuvered their surplus battalions to the best advantage, overlapped the weaker British flank, and won the day. The British loss was five hundred, or one in four, the American four hundred, or only one in ten. Brown then turned Rial's flank, by crossing the Chippewa higher up, and prepared for the crowning triumph of crushing Drummond. He proposed a joint attack with Chauncey on Forts Niagara and George. But Chauncey happened to be ill at the time, he had not yet defeated Yao, and he strongly resented being made apparently subordinate to Brown. So the proposed combination failed at the critical moment. But, for the eighteen days between the Battle of Chippewa on the 5th of July, and Brown's receipt of Chauncey's refusal on the 23rd, the Americans carried all before them, right up to the British line that ran along the western end of Lake Ontario, from Fort Niagara to Burlington. During this period no great operations took place but two minor incidents served to exasperate feelings on both sides. Eight Canadian traitors were tried and hanged at Ancaster near Burlington, and Loyalists openly expressed their regret that Wilcox and others had escaped the same fate. Wilcox had been the ringleader of the parliamentary opposition to Brock in 1812, 
and had afterwards been exceedingly active on the American side, harrying every loyalist he and his raiders could lay their hands on. He ended by cheating the gallows, after all, as he fell in a skirmish towards the end of the present campaign on the Niagara frontier. The other exasperating incident was the burning of St. David's, on July 19th, by Colonel Stone, partly because it was a Tory village, and partly because the American militia mistakenly thought that one of their officers, Brigadier General Swift, had been killed by a prisoner to whom he had given quarter. When, on the 23rd of July, Brown at last received Chauncey's disappointing answer, he immediately stopped manoeuvring along the lower Niagara, and prepared to execute an alternative plan of marching diagonally across the Niagara Peninsula, straight for the British position at Burlington. To do this he concentrated at the Chippewa on the 24th. But by the time he was ready to put his plan into execution, on the morning of the 25th, he found himself in close touch with the British in his immediate front. Their advance guard of a thousand men, under Colonel Pearson, had just taken post at Lundy's Lane, near the falls. Their main body, under Rial, was clearing both banks of the lower Niagara. And Drummond himself had just arrived at Fort Niagara. Neither side knew the intentions of the other, but as the British were clearing the whole country up to the falls, and as the Americans were bent on striking diagonally inland from a point beside the falls, it inevitably happened that each met the other at Lundy's Lane, which runs inland from the Canadian side of the falls, at right angles to the river, and therefore between the two opposing armies. When Drummond, hurrying across from York, landed at Fort Niagara in the early morning of the fateful 25th, he found that the orders he had sent over on the 23rd were already being carried out, though in a slightly modified form. Colonel Tucker was marching off from Fort Niagara to Lewiston, which he took without opposition. Then, first making sure that the heights beyond were also clear, he crossed over the Niagara to Queenston, where his men had dinner with those who had marched up on the Canadian side from Fort George. Immediately after dinner, half the total sixteen hundred present marched back to garrison Forts George and Niagara, while the other half marched forward, upstream, on the Canadian side, with Drummond, towards Lundy's Lane, whether Rial had preceded them with reinforcements for the advanced guard under Colonel Pearson. In the meantime, Brown had heard about the taking of Lewiston, and fearing that the British might take Fort Slosser too, had at once given up all idea of his diagonal march on Burlington, and had decided to advance straight against Queenston instead. Thus both the American and the British main bodies were marching on Lundy's Lane from opposite sides, and in successive detachments throughout that long, intensely hot midsummer afternoon. Presently Rial got a report saying that the Americans were advancing in one massed force instead of in successive detachments. He thereupon ordered Pearson to retire from Lundy's Lane to Queenston, sent back orders that Colonel Hercules Scott, who was marching up twelve hundred men from near St. Catharines on Twelve Mile Creek, was also to go to Queenston, and reported both these changes to Drummond, who was hurrying along the Queenston Road towards Lundy's Lane as fast as he could. While the orderly officers were galloping back to Drummond and Hercules Scott, and while Pearson was getting his men in their order of march, Winfield Scott's brigade of American regulars suddenly appeared on the Chippewa Road, deployed for attack, and halted. There was a pause on both sides. Winfield Scott thought he might have Drummond's whole force in front of him. Rial thought he was faced by the whole of Brown's. But Winfield Scott, presently realizing that Pearson was unsupported, resumed his advance, while Pearson and Rial, not realizing that Winfield Scott was himself unsupported for the time being, immediately began to retire. 
At this precise moment Drummond dashed up and drew rein. There was not a minute to lose. The leading Americans were coming on in excellent order, only a musket shot away. Pearson's thousand were just in the act of giving up the key to the whole position, and Drummond's eight hundred were plodding along a mile or so in rear. But within that fleeting minute Drummond made the plan that brought on the most desperately contested battle of the war. He ordered Pearson's thousand back again. He brought his own eight hundred forward at full speed. He sent post-haste to Colonel Scott to change once more and march on Lundy's Lane. And so, by the time the astonished Americans were about to seize the key themselves, they found him ready to defend it. Too long for a hillock, too low for a hill, this key to the whole position in that stern fight has never had a special name. But it may well be known as Battle Rise. It stood a mile from the Niagara River, and just a step inland beyond the crossing of two roads. One of these, Lundy's Lane, ran lengthwise over it, at right angles to the Niagara. The other, which did not quite touch it, ran in the same direction as the river, all the way from Fort Erie to Fort George, and, of course, through both Chippewa and Queenston. The crest of Battle Rise was a few yards on the Chippewa side of Lundy's Lane, and there Drummond placed his seven field-guns. Round these guns the thickest of the battle raged, from first to last. The odds were four thousand Americans against three thousand British altogether. But the British were in superior force at first, and neither side had its full total in action at any one time, as casualties and reinforcements kept the numbers fluctuating. It was past six in the evening of that stifling 25th of July, when Winfield Scott attacked with the utmost steadiness and gallantry. Though the British outnumbered his splendid brigade, and though they had the choice of ground as well, he still succeeded in driving a wedge under their left flank, a move which threatened to break them away from the road along the river. But they retired in good order, reformed, and then drove out his wedge. By half-past seven the American army had all come into action, and Drummond was having hard work to hold his own. Brown, like Winfield Scott, at once saw the supreme importance of taking battle rise, so he sent two complete battalions against it, one of regulars leading, the other of militia in support. At the first salvo from Drummond's seven guns, the American militia broke and ran away. But Colonel Miller worked some of the American regulars very cleverly along the far side of a creeper-covered fence, while the rest engaged the battery from a distance. In the heat of action the British artillerymen never saw their real danger, till, on a given signal, Miller's advanced party all sprang up and fired a point-blank volley, which killed or wounded every man beside the guns. Then Miller charged and took the battery. But he only held it for a moment. The British centre charged up their own side of Battle Rise and drove the intruders back, after a terrific struggle with the bayonet. But again success was only for the moment. The Americans rallied and pressed the British back. The British then rallied and returned. And so the desperate fight swayed back and forth across the coveted position, till finally both sides retired exhausted, and the guns stood dumb between them. It was now pitch dark, and the lull that followed seemed almost like the end of the fight. But after a considerable pause, the Americans, all regulars this time, came on once more. This put the British in the greatest danger. Drummond had lost nearly a third of his men. The effective American regulars were a little less than double his present twelve hundred effectives of all kinds, and were the fresher army of the two. Miller had taken one of the guns from Battle Rise. The other six could not be served against close-quarter musketry, and the nearest Americans were actually resting between the crossroads and the deserted rise. Defeat looked certain for the British. 
But just as the attackers and defenders began to stir again, Colonel Hercules Scott's twelve hundred weary reinforcements came plodding along the Queenston Road, wheeled round the corner into Lundy's Lane, and stumbled in amongst these nearest Americans, who, being the more expectant of the two, drove them back in confusion. The officers, however, rallied the men at once. Drummond told off eight hundred of them, including three hundred militia, to the reserve, prolonged his line to the right with the rest, and thus re-established the defence. Hardly had the new arrivals taken breath before the final assault began. Again the Americans took the silent battery. Again the British drove them back. Again the opposing lines swayed to and fro across the deadly crest of Battle Rise, with nothing else to guide them through the hot, black night but their own flaming musketry. The Americans could not have been more gallant and persistent in attack. The British could not have been more steadfast in defence. Midnight came, but neither side could keep its hold on Battle Rise. By this time Drummond was wounded, and Rial was both wounded and a prisoner. Among the Americans, Brown and Winfield Scott were also wounded, while their men were worn out after being under arms for nearly eighteen hours. A pause of sheer exhaustion followed. Then, slowly and sullenly, as if they knew the one more charge they could not make must carry home, the foiled Americans turned back and felt their way to Chippewa. The British ranks lay down in the same order as that in which they fought, and a deep hush fell over the whole, black-shrouded battlefield. The immemorial voice of those dread falls to which no combatant gave heed for six long hours of mortal strife was heard once more. But near at hand there was no other sound than that which came from the whispered queries of a few tired officers on duty, from the busy orderlies and surgeons at their work of mercy, and from the wounded moaning in their pain. So passed the quiet half of that short, momentous summer night. Within four hours the sun shone down on the living and the dead, on that silent battery whose gunners had fallen to a man, on the unconquered rise. The tide of war along the Niagara frontier favoured neither side for some time after Lundy's Lane, though the Americans twice appeared to be regaining the initiative. On August 15th there was a well-earned American victory at Fort Erie, where Drummond's assault was beaten off with great loss to the British. A month later an American sortie was repulsed. On September 21st Drummond retired beaten, and on October 13th he found himself again on the defensive at Chippewa, with little more than three thousand men, while Izard, who had come with American reinforcements from Lake Champlain and Sackett's Harbor, was facing him with twice as many. But Yeo's fleet had now come up to the mouth of the Niagara, while Chauncey's had remained at Sackett's Harbor. Thus the British had the priceless advantage of a movable naval base at hand, while the Americans had none at all within supporting distance. Every step towards Lake Ontario hampered Izzard more and more, while it added corresponding strength to Drummond. An American attempt to work round Drummond's flank, twelve miles inland, was also foiled by a heavy skirmish on October 19th at Cook's Mills, and Izzard's definite abandonment of the invasion was announced on November 5th by his blowing up Fort Erie and retiring into winter quarters. This ended the war along the whole Niagara. The campaign on Lake Ontario was very different. It opened two months earlier. The naval competition consisted rather in building than in fighting. The British ships built in Kingston, the Americans in Sackett's Harbour, and reports of progress soon travelled across the intervening space of less than forty miles. The initiative of combined operations by land and water was undertaken by the British instead of by the Americans. Yeo and Drummond wished to attack Sackett's Harbour with four thousand men. 
but Prevost said he could only spare them three thousand, whereupon they changed their objective to Oswego, which they took in excellent style, on May 6th. The British suffered a serious reverse, though on a very much smaller scale, on May 30th at Sandy Creek, between Oswego and Sackett's Harbor, when a party of marines and bluejackets, sent to cut out some vessels with naval stores for Chauncey, was completely lost, every man being either killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. From Lake Ontario down to the sea, the Canadian frontier was never seriously threatened, and the only action of any consequence was fought to the south of Montreal in the early spring. On March 30th the Americans made a last inglorious attempt in this direction. Wilkinson started with four thousand men to follow the line of Lake Champlain and the Richelieu River, the same that was tried by Dearborn in 1812 and by Hampton in 1813. At La Coye, only four miles across the frontier, he attacked Major Hancock's posts of two hundred men. The result was like a second Chateau-Guy. Hancock drew in three hundred reinforcements and two gunboats from Isle-aux-Noix. Wilkinson's advance guard lost its way overnight. In the morning he lacked the resolution to press on, even with his overwhelming numbers, and so after a part of his army had executed some disjointed manoeuvres, he withdrew the whole and gave up in despair. From this point of the Canadian frontier to the very end of the five-thousand-mile loop, that is, from Montreal to Mexico, the theatre of operations was directly based upon the sea, where the British navy was by this time undisputedly supreme. A few small American men-of-war were still at large, together with a much greater number of privateers. But they had no power whatever even to mitigate the irresistible blockade of the whole coastline of the United States. American seaborne commerce simply died away, for no mercantile marine could have carried on any independent life when its trade had to be carried on by a constantly decreasing tonnage, when, too, it could go to sea at all only by furtive evasion, and when it had to take cargo at risks so great that they could not be covered, either by insurance or by any attainable profits. The Atlantic being barred by this great blockade, and the Pacific being inaccessible, the only practical way left open to American trade was through the British lines by land or sea. Some American seamen shipped in British vessels. Some American ships sailed under British colors. But the chief external American trade was done illicitly, by underground, with the British West Indies and with Canada itself. This was, of course, in direct defiance of the American government, and to the direct detriment of the United States as a nation." It was equally to the direct benefit of the British colonies in general, and of Nova Scotia in particular. American harbors had never been so dull. Quebec and Halifax had never been so prosperous. American money was drained away from the warlike South and West, and either concentrated in the northern states, which were opposed to the war, or paid over into British hands. End of chapter 6, part 1